Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Peter A. Swenson, who is the author of Disorder, A History of Reform, Reaction, and Money in American Medicine from Yale University Press. Peter, welcome. If you would uh, start us off by telling uh, our listeners a little bit about who you are and how it is you came to this particular book project. Oh, okay, sure. Th- thanks, Stephen. Um, thanks for inviting me to, to do this. Um, so I'm a, I'm a political scientist, uh, so to speak. Um, I, I've taught at uh, Penn and Northwestern University before I came to, to Yale. Um, I, I come from a medical family, which explains a bit of my interest um, uh, in, in the medical politics. Um, my mother, my father was a professor of medicine, a pulmonologist. My mother was a, a nurse and a public health nurse. And, and, um, but I, I, it was, I was very political as a young age. I, you know, it was the Vietnam War, civil rights, Watergate. I wanted to be a investigative journalist, a muckraker. Um, and to, I never got the sense that medicine was in any way political from my, from my parents, although they were liberals and so forth. And, and, um, but so I, I've come sort of full circle when, as I learned, as I started teaching um, mostly and writing about economics and politics of labor, social insurance, the welfare state in the U.S., as well as Sweden and Germany. Um, and I was, you know, my, the focus on, to the extent it was on health care, it was about the health insurance. And as most political scientists and, uh, and sociologists on, on the subject, the, the focus was on the distribution and financing, but not so much on the organization and delivery and costs and in, and in the quality of healthcare. Um, what, what are we paying for and um, not just how we're paying for it and who we're distributing it to. And then uh, there was a question of the costs, um, huge rising costs. Um, as Warren Buffett called healthcare in America. It's a hungry tapeworm. It eats up 20% of the GDP. Um, so um, long story short, uh, I started teaching on the political economy of healthcare, and I came across a book by, I, I have to give credit to Michael Millenson. He, he wrote a book called Demanding Medical Excellence, and it was really eye-opening for me as well as my students about the, the problems of deficient quality uh, in healthcare, and, and so I started looking at um, the quality issues, and and so in the end, my book is about three big issues: quality, equality, and economy. 
Um, and it explores the, um, the relations between those. And you might call it a kind of a trilemma. Um, choose two, uh, equality and equality, but it'll be damned expensive. Uh, and, or equality in economy, um, it may not be very high quality. Um, so um, there are huge trade-offs, and how, or and how do you resolve that? And and, and the, but the book is about tracing an arc of medical politics and how those three issues, quality, equality, and economy, figure in the politics. So when we think about the 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 histories of those kinds of questions, healthcare in the United States and how we account for its difference. The, the traditional accounts will often foreground the role of the American Medical Association. I'm thinking of Paul Starr's Social Transformation of American Medicine, which may be familiar to some listeners. But one of the things that I think is particularly fascinating about your book is that you bring to us a history of both the AMA, the American Medical Association, and the medical profession more generally that is, I think, fair to say, not covered in those more traditional histories. So I wonder if we might do this a little bit chronologically. Tell us a little bit about the state of the medical profession, say, prior to the progressive era, and then we'll work our way forward and talk about some of that history that may be less familiar to people. So before we get to 1900, give or take, what does the medical profession look like? And is there any sort of, of organization of it as we would recognize today? Uh Okay. Um, let me just, it's interesting you brought up STAR. Um, I, I, one, my, my original uh, title or working title was The Political Transformation of American Medicine. Uh, and he was a social transformation. And, and he covers a, very much the same uh, period, but there's very little politics in it, um, extremely little, and very little uh, illuminating about the American Medical Association. Uh, and, 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 and also, I, I critique him quite a bit in the book. Um, he he sees the the AMA uh, as this the conservative organization it was and is uh, at the at time uh, through the lens of the the present. Uh, the, the, he sees the historical AMA through the lens of the present. And and what I learned to my surprise was that the AMA uh, around the turn of the twentieth century was a profoundly progressive organization. Um, astonishingly progressive when you when you um, think about what it became. Um, so, uh, um, what was uh, the the progressive AM, AMA? Well, um, what is what is progressive medicine? Uh, what is progress, progressivism in in medicine? Well, first of all, the AMA was part of a prog- the larger progressive movement, and it 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 overlapped with the larger in, in personnel and people and issue concerns with the overall larger public health movement, and that that's gone by the nineteen twenty in the nineteen twenties. So, what is progressive medicine? Uh, prevention before treatment. Uh, public health should be a central mission, not a side sideshow. Um, rational therapeutics, that's the term they used at the time. Um, evidence-based treatment. Um, equity, equitable distribution of quality care, quality rational therapeutics. Um, and extremely important in the early the AMA, progressive AMA was avoidance of conflicts of interest. 
a very arm's length and even hostile relations with the drug industry. Um, a, a search for order and progress, to use uh, Weeby's uh, title on the progress, progressive, progressivism. Um, interesting on an aside, um, the AMA is just virtually absent from the liter- historical literature on progressivism. Um, the role of science and expertise and and a really important theme and issue in, in my book, both pre- and post-reactionary turn, was the role of alliances with lay forces, with lay people, lay organizations. And, and um, the, in the post-1920s, the alliances, uh, the, the, the character of medico-political alliances changed uh, uh, radically. So um, just one more, a couple more points about, so the big issues in the progressive era was, was drug re, I mean, one of them was drug reform. Um, and, and the relations with the drug industry were, were, were murderous. It were, they were hostile. And, and, and the AMA was a key factor behind the passage of the first food and drug act uh, in 1906. And, by 1938, it's um, it, the the big reform. Um, then um, the AMA was missing in action, and then in 1962, so the 1938 brought a regulation of drug uh, marketing of, uh, to ensure safety, not not yet efficacy. Efficacy comes in 1962 with the Kefauver Harris amendments to the uh, uh, Food and Drug Act. And the AMA was against the reform that called for, <clears throat> believe it or not, um, against um, the requiring quality, random, uh, uh, quality, uh, uh, double-blind um, drug trials for safe, for efficacy as well as safety. They were against that. Um, uh, they thought that doctors don't need help deciding what drugs to use on efficacy grounds, they could figure it out for themselves in their individual uh, practice. Uh, the other big issues are public health and um, th- creating a national department of health like other countries had. Uh, um, and we didn't get a national cabinet level um, department of health, the H- health education welfare until 1953. Um, well, the progressive push for the department of health um, failed with, on, with oppos- because of opposition in part from the drug industry. Um, and so um, after uh, the 20s, the, the AMA stopped pushing for uh, a national system. And they even were very crabby about creating one in the HEW in 1953. Medical education, um, a battle against for-profit medical schools. Uh, think Trump University medical schools. Um, the vast majority of Medical schools were for-profit, proprietary institutions. And finally, there was the issue of compulsory health insurance, which was a big um, battleground inside the MA and then ultimately was part of the story. Not, a, not the big part other people say, but it, it, the battle for the over about compulsory health insurance was part of set in motion the, the, um, a, a kind of the reactionary turn up in part of reaction a backbench revolt, if you will, against the progressive AMA. So, so why don't we, we work our way toward, toward making sense of that progressive term? So you've talked about this 
organization that that really is not folded in in traditional progressive era histories of of the many kinds of coalitions that were forming around issues specifically for state and federal regulation and the ways in which we should be thinking about the central role that the AMA played in a number of those fights. But as you've pointed out here a couple of times now, by the time we get to 1920s, that genuinely progressive American Medical Association starts to shift in its politics and its policy preferences in and in the way that it functions. So maybe talk us through that. So what happens and why? And then let's look a little bit at at what the effects of that reactionary turn are for efforts at health policy in the mid-20th century. Sure. Um, so it wasn't a shift. It was a it was a dramatic break. Uh, it was a the internal politics of the AMA was in turmoil um, because a, a lot of the progressive reform uh, agenda um, made a lot of rank and file doctors as as well as elite doctors um, mad mad as hell. I've, I mean, just one to give you one example: the medical education reform. The AMA was secretly instigated the the Flexner report of 1910 that's not known I I, 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 I write about that um, it meant shutting down a lot of the medical schools really abysmal horrible medical schools that um, the rank and file doctors went to and they had their diplomas on their you know on their office walls and and um, public health um, that I mean some we're against public health because that meant less less typhoid me, me, fever meant le, less bad for business. <laughs> for bad for business. Um, uh, dr- drug reform, um, yeah. So all, in my book, I talk about how each of those these big issues uh, created enemies inside the profession while creating friends, making friends with uh, lay forces outside uh, uh, the profession, and the, the reactionary turn. It was sudden. It meant a turnover, a massive turnover in who led the leadership. Um, people were virtually booted out, the old progressives, um, replaced by younger people without public health interests or backgrounds. Um, and there was a kind of schism with the public health movement afterwards. Um, and and create the kind of... So recently, we've with COVID, we've... Um, we look at a public health system that's underfunded in disarray, chaos, and and after the reaction, he turned those the relationships with the public health world and between medicine and public health was one of confrontation, suspicion, um, di- creating the disarray that and and I'm using words here that the Institute of Medicine um, used in 1988 to to describe the. Um, so the reaction turn meant increasing and then friendliness and ultimately um, dense entanglements with the drug industry and, and um, handing the question of rational therapeutics over to um, profit of uh, profit making enterprise. Um, and, um, and then the change in the alliances of the medical profession uh, away from progressive liberal forces to conservative uh, and that included, and one ought to be surprised, the tobacco and cigarette tobacco and cigarette interests of the southern uh, 
southern states. Um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the AMA becomes a member of, uh, of the Chamber of Commerce, the, the National Association of Manufacturers, the American Farm Bureau. Um, it, it, it was just a radical shift and sudden around 1924 is the big change. Um, and so it was a dramatic uh, um, turmoil inside the AMA, as, as I said. Um, so uh, I think that's kind of part of the answer to your question. Yeah. So, so talk, let's talk a lot. I mean, I'm thinking particularly about the influence of uh, drug industry money and tobacco industry money in shaping the way the organization thinks about its politics. One of the things that you point out, among many things that I did not know, is that, in fact, member dues are not the main source of revenue, at least at this point, weren't for the AMA. Is this, is this about more than money, or is this the funders of the organization have particular interests, and this is the institution pursuing their financial interests rather than their oaths as medical professionals? Um, good questions. Um, I, I want to say one thing that we could maybe circle back to at the end was um, uh, the MA was a incredibly powerful force in, after the 1920s. Um, and, and so I write a chapter on medical power politics and, and, and here that's where I, uh, focus, you know, a lot of it is a critique of Paul Starr and, and the, um, the AMA exercise power, um, partly in alliance with lay forces, moneyed interests, um, uh, using a lot of propaganda, to, uh, but, um, but also there, the MA was a very coercive and punitive organization over the medical profession itself and, and suppressing dissent and punishing, um, uh, a dissent, dissent. So I talk a lot about the mechanisms of, of, you know, the MA couldn't have exercised its conservative power without exercising power over the profession. Um, so if, you know, it was the iron law of oligarchy, um, and um, and I add a corollary: the iron uh, where, where you say organization and you say oligarchy, and I say, well, say oligarchy, and, and you're saying misrepresentation. Okay, so um, <laughs> drugs, drugs and money, uh, and tobacco and money, and tobacco and money. Boy, um, it's. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the investigative muckraking journalists, um, I'm forgetting their names right now, called it the weirdest alliance uh, one could imagine, something about the weirdest so po political alliance one, one could imagine. Well, um, it, part of it was about, a big part of it was the Southern Democratic uh Powerful Congress people, senators con in control of power, com powerful committees, um, were an essential allies in the uh, opposition to opposition to national health insurance, to to compulsory health insurance, and they really needed that um, that that those allies, and um, they even went so far as to um, they were be AMA was part of the the. Uh, one of the merchants of doubt. Some people, readers might um, be familiar with that, how, how industry, one, one way industry 
of fights regulation is is to instill doubt about the need for it and whether science is settled on the question of, for example, does smoking cause cancer? Does smoking cause cardiovascular disease? Um, and the AMA played this role of um, as a merchant of doubt for for uh, for many years, and even was opposed to civil litigation against tobacco companies. And and one of a f- former CEO testified that um, in a deposition in a, an important case that uh, where the um, plaintiffs lost was that he didn't, he didn't like the word cause. Uh, connecting smoking and cancer because um, there are so many people who smoke who never get cancer. Well, well, that was just a fatuous, specious (laughs) argument. It's just laughable to anyone who understands how medical causation, you know, what causes things. And and so uh, that's a, that's a, a shocking uh, part of the, but the bigger part in the end was, was the drug uh, and device, medical device industries, mostly the drug industry, but um, the device, medical device industries, biotech, the, the medico industrial complex. So I depict, and I think that the, the, um, the AMA, organized medicine in general, is part of the warp and weft of the medico-industrial complex. Um, the, the AMA, the organized medicine, the house of medicine, so to speak, is the warp, uh, the vertical, whatever, and then the, and the money, uh, the weft weaving together. And they, it, you, you need a warp and a weft for this medico-industrial complex. And I, I think we, um, people don't see organized medicine as, 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 you know, essential. They're the organized uh, and medical organizations, and and increasingly, especially specialty organizations, are in a very real sense the agent selling agents of the medical, the drug and and and, and de- device industry. So, I mean, it, it it's very intricate. Uh, all the work moving parts of that. Are uh, you know I could get into the weeds on, on a, a good number of them, but let me just to give you some um, um, some figures on this. Let me so uh, U.S. healthcare is about twenty percent of the GDP. That's massive. Okay, and um, j- just a moment. I'm 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 bad at just pulling up numbers out of my head. <laughs> Um, okay, so pharma and med med tech, uh, one point five trillion dollars a year, um, uh, and, uh, and um, that's a huge chunk of the uh, four trillion the U.S. spends on healthcare. Pharma plus med tech, one point five trillion. You um, healthcare, four trillion. Okay, that's a vast amount, and and a lo- a huge amount of that trickles down through. Uh, organized medicine, um, uh, and oh, you brought up, and this is really important: membership dues of the AMA and and its and over a hundred specialty societies that are voting, uh, you know, have voting rights inside the AMA. Membership dues are fifteen to twenty percent, um, typically, um, and 
in a way, so you read the yearly reports and that's kind of deceiving because so much of there, there's, you become an, a member of AMA and you get lots of benefits, um, money, monetary side benefits of being a member of the AMA, which costs the, and, and the specialty societies would cost them money. So it's all shrouded in secrecy. The yearly reports do not give you a picture. And, and I'll bring up, there's a reform element now in the, in the you know, post-90s AMA, but they're held, kept in the dark about um, what, and, and they don't, uh, they don't, they're kept in the dark, um, let, let's put it that way. And, and we could come back to that reform inside the MA and a, a kind of new progressivism. Well, yeah, um, I think that 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 seems like the sensible place to go now, right? As you observe that the, you know, part of the context for what you were just pointing out, right, is that we spend more than any other rich democracy on the planet than healthcare and, on healthcare and get less for it, right? We've got uh, higher infant mortality rates, lower life expectancy rates, higher rates of morbidity and mortality around all kinds of issues, yada yada yada. Um, there are all kinds of different ways that different people have thought what we do about that. But certainly most of the explanations for why we fail point toward some of what you just just gestured at, right? Is the, the enormous opportunities for private profit making in the United States that don't seem to exist in the same way in other places. And most accounts of 20th century efforts at fixing that problem, put the AMA pretty squarely in the center of that story. They're almost always one of the key players in ensuring that we don't get more healthcare coverage offered to more people at lower costs. As you've suggested, you see signs that maybe things are turning around, right? 2010, the Affordable Care Act, the first instance in the modern period in which the AMA was not in outright opposition. Um, what do you see changing and should we be hopeful about a possible future in which they are less powerful in opposition to better access and price controls on healthcare? I'm not very optimistic about, uh, uh, darn it. <laughs> uh, about, about organized um, medicine. So uh, it's interesting. There are a lot of medical reformers now um, in the medical profession. And, and w- one thing that's really new is that it used to be a powerful code of silence um, that, that the organized medicine imposed on the medical profession. You don't not only don't you cr- criticize your fellow physicians, but you don't criticize med- the med- medical care in any way into the public. And, and it was very oppressive. Um, and that's changed. Um, there are many, many prominent, influential uh, medical people who are, and the vast majority of them um, w- will do not join the AMA, although they're, they're members of their specialty societies, but they basically have written it off as um, just irrelevant. I, and there are dozens and dozens of books by physicians criticizing the American medical disorder, as as I call it. Um, and they either don't, typically they don't mention the AMA. It's just irrelevant to them. Um, and and they, they just want to, they, they feel like it's so, I don't know, it, it, it's irrelevant uh, or, wor- or, or, or worse, or or worse, 
and I think their attitude is uh, you're likely to get reform out of organized medicine as likely as getting gun control reform out of the NRA. Um, it just um, is not going to happen. But my position is this is wrong. This is this is the wrong. So there are two there are two kinds of reformers. They're the insiders in the MA, and they're and they're a significant number and growing number who who are trying to push it in a progressive uh, direction. But then there are those who say they these are just enablers. Um, they're passing very admirable resolutions and policies um, that. Um, uh, but they're just paper, and, and they give the AMA cover, you know, for looking progressive. But when they spend their $20 million a year in lobbying funds with 50 professional lobbyists, um, they're, not, they're not pushing for reforms, that public health reforms, for example, uh, cl- reforms for climate action, uh, control of antibiotics, um, dealing with food insecurity and food deserts and obesity uh, fossil fuel pollution, uh, you know, these are, they, they pay lip, lip service to, to these things, but the EMA does, and in the specialty societies don't even bother. Uh, it, okay, so I, um, I understand the critics who say the, AMA, the reformers inside the AMA are enablers, but the, the people who, who write off the AMA are also enablers in, in that they let this the the one of the most powerful forces in American healthcare uh, just go about its uh, business, um, and and so I argue for the critics of the AMA to join the AMA um, and, and and help it be, wean itself from its what I, I call um, its commercial uh, it's it's on commercial life support um, and. And organizations run on money, uh, but it's they're they're not running on membership dues. But um, writing it off, writing this powerful force off instead of reforming it, is enabling it uh, too. And so maybe a, on an optimistic note is: look, um, the AMA gave one year two million dollars to this coalition of uh, insurance companies, drug industry, hospitals. Um, profit-for-profit hospitals to fight um, against a single-payer system. Well, that didn't sit well with a lot of um, delegates to the House, the MA's House of Delegates, and and there was a vote uh, that went 47% um, calling on the MA to drop its opposition and and to excuse itself from this uh, coalition to drop its, drop its opposition to single payer, not to support single payer, but just drop its opposition. Um, because um, the MA boasts of being the voice of unified voice of American medicine. Well, that's BS. <laughs> uh, and, and that it's leads at the f- forefront of um, public health. Um, uh, m- more, more BS. But so there is an element um, younger, often female, uh, they're they're not the sole male uh, independent practitioner that were dominated in the AMA, and so the medical profession in the ranks is is changing dramatically, and they could be a potential force for change 
through the AMA, through organized medicine, not uh, trying to go around it, which is a um, um, pretty uh, it isn't working. I am going to suggest that on that reasonably optimistic note is a perfect place to end. Uh, This is the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and you've been listening to Peter Swenson talking about his new book, Disorder, A History of Reform, Reaction, and Money in American Medicine, new from Yale University Press. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thank you, Stephen.